inventors and their inventions. Welcome to Radio Cade, a podcast from the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention in Gainesville, Florida. The museum is named after James Robert Cade, who invented Gatorade in 1965. My name is Richard Miles. We'll introduce you to inventors and the things that motivate them. We'll learn about their personal stories, how their inventions work, and how their ideas get from the laboratory to the marketplace. Unmanned aerial vehicles started out as a military technology, but are now used in agriculture, surveying, search and rescue, pipeline monitoring, emergency response, infrastructure inspection, and disaster relief. Welcome to Radio Cade. I'm your host, Richard Miles. Today, my guest is Trevor Parrott, CEO and co-founder of a UAV company called Census Technologies in Daytona Beach, Florida. Welcome to Radio Cade, Trevor. Thank you very much. Appreciate the opportunity and the platform. So I was doing a little bit of research on UAVs, and I'm going to let you correct me to see how much of it I, I get right or wrong. But UAVs or drones, as a lot of people refer to them now, this technology has surprisingly been around a while in one form or another, going back to the mid-19th century, 1849, when the Austrians used balloons loaded up with explosives to attack Venice. And then the concept was further developed also during wartime, World War One, World War Two. But it wasn't really until the 1990s and 2000s that UAVs started taking off, so to speak. So now we're at the point where Amazon can make drone deliveries of small packages, consumers. And I'm guessing one day my pizza and beer will arrive the same way in the backyard, which would be great. But my point is that this has grown to be an incredibly competitive market. So tell us where Census is positioned in the market. What are your current line of products and how do you plan to grow and succeed in what has got to be a huge and rapidly growing market? Well, the only thing I'm going to correct you on is that Amazon still can't deliver packages, at least not in mass market. They, they've got some limited approvals to do some trial runs, <laughs> but there's still quite the problem still exists in proving what we call resilient communications, resilient UAS operations. A lot of those mass market opportunities hinge on something that we call it BV loss, which is is actually an acronym that stands for Beyond Visual Line of Sight. So BVLOS, kind of slurring it a little bit into BV loss. That's kind of where Census is positioned. We're in a very small segment of companies that has onboard detect and avoid technology, which what that does is our drones are able to look across the sky and identify potential collisions and then avoid those collisions before they encroach on what's called a near miss. So which that's about uh, 4,000 feet or so is generally what we call a near miss. I think a lot of people kind of struggle with that spatial understanding that 4,000 feet is not a lot when objects are moving at hundreds of miles an hour. So it sounds big, but I promise that's actually really close in three dimensions. So where we're at is aggregating all those technological pieces together. So mass market package delivery isn't going to happen until communications are reliable and collisions are extremely unlikely, mitigated, almost in full. So that's where we're at. So Trevor, just so I understand this correctly, it sounds like your line of UAVs are built and designed for much longer journeys than say some of the UAVs that people are used to seeing now that like say a construction company will use to fly around a building or even a farm will use to survey a field. And then critical to that is obviously the communications the, the entire time. 
Who are some of your clients? I don't need company names, but sort of like sectors or types of companies. What are the end users look like for your line of UAVs? So far, we've been selling a lot into the energy industry vertical, which includes the enterprise energy companies, as well as you can imagine those enterprises have dozens of industrial service providers. So there are two main clientele in that market segment. We also, very similarly, when you look at other verticals, construction or engineering firms, corporate agriculture is another big vertical. I think one of the things that I answered in the questionnaire is that the biggest thing that impresses me every day is that just application after application after application keeps coming around. We just sold a drone that's going to be used for low atmospheric weather research, which is something we had not done before. We're selling several to validate different types of communications equipment. So it's not necessarily performing a data acquisition mission, as you would think of it, like taking pictures or video. It's more proving that you can actually communicate in a reliable fashion. Got it. So this year, 2020, which we're recording this episode, has been a tough year for a lot of companies. But for you all, it appears that it's been pretty good in the sense that you've hit a couple of big milestones. I saw you got a grant from the Florida-Israel Innovation Partnership and then also significant investment later in the year from a venture fund. Tell us, what does the grant that you got for the Florida-Israel partnership, it was to develop a communications platform, right? Something like that. Give us a few details about that. Sure. So the grant was a little bit about the program. It's meant to stimulate economic activity between Florida and Israel. And we had an existing supplier that made a piece of communications hardware that we were using in the UAV. But some weaknesses with the current state of the art are different frequencies will get blocked out by different things. For example, some frequencies get highly absorbed by vegetation because vegetation contains a lot of water. Other frequencies do not do well with terrain. They cannot bounce over hills and mountains. So what we're doing with Mobilicom is developing a resilient communication system that's closer to frequency agnostic. And what that means is if you have frequency A, B, and C, the same information is being shot down all three. But on the receiving end, if you got a third of the message on frequency A, a third on B, and a third on C, we can actually rejoin all of those pieces and still get the information on the other side. So it's just a way of reducing data loss over long-range communications which are going to be key to making UAPs safer and commercially viable. Tell me what the partnership looks like. Do members of your team, are they in Israel or, or vice versa? Are the Israelis over in Daytona Beach? Is this real time limited? Is this an agreement that you'll work together for a certain amount of time? Or, or is this indefinite where you're working on a product development or software development that will eventually result in some sort of end use? The end goal here is that our team's in Daytona Beach and Mobilicom's team is near Tel Aviv in Israel. And uh, we're kind of co-developing what will eventually be a communications product. So this is not just R&D for fun, it's R&D to commercialize. Trevor, if you could, just for the benefit of our listeners, what are some applications that either you're doing now or you think are possible, say, in the next couple of years that are intuitively obvious to people in terms of applications of UAVs or, or drones? 
there's really starting to be a huge opening in environmental applications. So a lot of people don't realize this, but the petroleum industry has tremendous problems with leaks in the pipelines. And it's not just fluids, it's gases. So how can you cost-effectively patrol millions of miles of infrastructure and get an idea for where a methane leak's coming from? How much is it leaking? What's going to be the cost to fix it? The current workflow is drive a truck down the right-of-way and look for defects. That doesn't sound that expensive, but when you carry that over, as I said, millions of miles, that's one that I think is really interesting to see. So there are certain payloads, we call them sniffer payloads. They literally have air pass through them looking for different compounds. And from empirical data, you can kind of draw a line between, okay, if I saw this many parts per million at this distance from the pipeline, then the leak is approximately X pounds of methane an hour. Wow, that's fascinating. Does this sort of capability, even in theory, could you do it over an underwater pipeline as well? Is there a way to detect leakage or is that a little bit beyond the horizon at this point? So underwater applications, there's a lot of challenges. First of all, underwater communications is just a pain. You typically get stuck using extremely low frequency communications. And yeah, you can get information from A to B, but you can't get very much. So the higher the frequency, typically the higher the data rate, the lower the frequency, the further away you can speak, but the less you can send at a time. Think Morse code versus a phone call, to kind of give you an analogy. So gas leaks underwater. The gases do not disperse the water in the same way they do in air. Different fluid rules, if you will. Trevor, let's talk a little bit about the company, your development of it. I noticed in August, you got a pretty significant investment from a venture fund in Florida. What part of your day, what part of your week is spent now talking to investors and, and as opposed to your engineers? Is that a big part of your job now is finding that capital as your company starts expanding? Well, I believe I'm probably in the minority of CEOs where as part of the transaction that you're referring to, we got a couple of new directors that are just absolute all-stars and have really lightened my load in the pursuit of other sources of capital. So with that freed me up, the name of the game for me is racking the revenue number as high as I can. And one of the things about this kind of a business where it does take investment capital to get it going is that capital begets capital is the name of it. So if you can get the investor capital, then you can get the revenue. If you get the revenue, you can get more investor capital. And then so goes the engine. But kind of like a pull start on a lawnmower, if you never get the first spark, it's kind of hard to get it to turn over. Well, you are in an enviable position because the common complaint from a lot of startup CEOs is that here you are spending 90% of your time in design, development, doing that first prototype, and then boom, you make it big. And all of a sudden, that CEO has got to be on the road hustling to get the resources to develop the company and keep going. And it's a little bit of a shock because it's a different world entirely. So the fact that you have some board members that can help you do that is fantastic because otherwise you would hit a sort of design and production bottleneck pretty quickly if one person is trying to do it all. I'd really like to explore a bit about your development as an entrepreneur, because clearly it sounds like you know what you're doing and have learned quite a bit. 
You're a relatively young guy. Of course, the older I get, everyone looks a little bit younger to me. So you're probably not as young as I think you are, but you started and founded and running a mid-sized company now. Tell us about your journey as an entrepreneur. I, I know you grew up in a small town in Illinois, in the middle of a cornfield, as you put it. And your dad was a carpenter, your mom was a teacher, and you learned how to mill metal from your grandfather. So tell us about that experience growing up, how you think it shaped you in terms of who you are now, growing up in that hands-on environment. And bonus question is, were you a good student in school? So I know it's a big question, but let's start there. Let me hit the bonus question first. If you measure by my grades alone, I was an excellent student. But if I'm being honest, I would say, no, I wasn't. And what I'm getting at with that is I would feel that generally speaking, I was blessed with a pretty sharp mind and I never had to study never had to do this, just did not have to put in nearly as much effort to yield the same result as some of my classmates. And I'm not saying that to boast. I'm saying that as when I got to college, it kind of kicked my butt because I went straight from high school into engineering school and it was night and day. So coming back to the other points that you asked about, the hands-on environment, I think, was very essential to who I am. It may terrify some people, but I'm going to say it anyway. You would be amazed at how many people not just get into engineering school, but graduate it, still having never changed the oil in a car. And what I've learned is that that basic skill set of having to fix things, having to build things, whatever, is not something that's natural. So in the business context, I've had to be extremely selective about the people that, that come into the organization. And a lot of it has been focused on, have you ever built something before? Have you ever had to do the colloquial square peg in the round hole problem? And were you successful? So the nice thing about being in a cornfield, I guess, is that you get to experiment with a bunch of things that you wouldn't be able to do in the city environment. I'm a pyro at heart. I love to blow things up. <laughs> and I think doing that in the country was a blessing that you can't pick up in the city environment. Are your grandfather and father still living? My father is. My grandfather passed a few years ago. Had you already started the company before your grandfather passed away? About a year before he died, yes. All right. I'm sure he must have been very proud to see that sort of hands-on training come to fruition a number of years later. He got to hear about several failures in that first year. How much pride was there? I'm not sure. <laughs> well, grandparents are usually good at hiding their worries. So maybe he was worried, but in the end, you certainly proved him right. In starting and running your own company, Trevor, what have been your biggest surprises? What were your expectations when you founded the company? And then what would have been those big surprises? Is there anything you've looked back on and said, man, I was totally wrong about that? And then if you'd like to share any big failures early on, and what did you learn from them? So cards on the table, this is the first venture back company that I have been involved with. And I would say the, the biggest weakness that I walked in with that I think I've turned into a strength is I was actually really weak in finance. I did not have a lot of understanding about how to control and articulate financial mechanisms to get a particular objective accomplished. I kind of have taken myself to the school a little bit on corporate finance, a lot of reading, a lot of textbook reading on corporate finance. And one of the most important lessons, curveballs that I'd say hit me definitely the first year and a half of the company is you have to be extremely judicious on who you allow to advise you. 
because one of the things that I've learned is that I was actually getting fed a lot of what makes perfect sense, but it's still not true about how to start this kind of a company. The best example I have for that is that the first business plan I ever wrote for this company said, I'm going to need about $2.5 million of capital. I'm going to need three years. And it is impractical and hazardous to try and do it a different way. And what I found myself getting into was we raised capital $25,000 at a time. And we were in this perpetual cycle of a little bit of revenue, a little bit of investor capital. And the piecemeal very, very nearly killed us. So I think that the big lesson for me is you really got to stick to your guns about there is a minimum amount of capital you need to get going. And don't put your customers on the hook if you can't get a hold of it. So that's something that was definitely a learning experience for me. So one thing that founders of companies get asked to do, and certainly of successful companies, is to speak to students. And you probably already have had that experience, but if you haven't, you will soon. Whether it's a bunch of bright high school students or engineering or business students in college, what would be some pearls of wisdom that you would dispense if you have somebody similar, like say a first-year engineering student at some university saying, wow, I really admire what you've done. I want to do something like that. What would be your advice from that angle, say a bright 12th grader or a freshman or sophomore at an engineering or a business program at a university? Well, believe it or not, I don't have a whole lot of great things to say because to do the kind of company that I did, it was very capital intensive. The things we sell are expensive, which is good, except you also need a lot of capital to build it in the first place. So what that really means is I think I commented to you in the questionnaire that you got to do things like take a second mortgage on your house and max out your credit card. And I do not come from a bunch of money, but I'm the son of the teacher and a carpenter. Now, I know there are people in this world that are far worse off than I am, but let's just say we weren't sitting on $2 million in cash to put into a business endeavor. So you have to walk into this and you have to really, really ask yourself, will I literally bet the farm to do this? And if the answer is no, then don't start. Don't waste anybody else's time, including your own, because you can always make more money, but time, when it's gone, it's gone. So some of the risks that I took were so large and still continue to be pretty big, actually that I'm just not so sure that it's for everybody. And I think our culture, we like to glorify entrepreneurship a lot. Like universities have entire centers of entrepreneurship established. And I think that we really have to be more honest culturally with entrepreneurs. Like one of the comments that I also made is that founding CEOs are not overpaid. If they take all of those risks and then they end up absolutely killing it, extremely high risk, extremely high reward. I just think we have to be more honest culturally with entrepreneurs and what really goes into that. Because a lot of times entrepreneurs are so busy that they never sit down to tell you exactly how high the stakes were. Those are great observations, Trevor, and got me thinking, you're right, there is a way in which popular culture and university programs and so on have kind of made entrepreneurship seem safer than it is or like less risky than it is. And they hype the exciting part of it, right? 
but not the potential downsides. And it also struck me too that there's this continuum between risk tolerance where you're willing to try new things, but also kind of gut confidence, right? I imagine you wouldn't do something like take out a second mortgage unless you had high confidence in the product and the idea you're developing was really solid. You didn't just take a flyer and like, yeah, maybe this will work, maybe it won't. And I'm guessing you told yourself, I know this is going to work. I just got to find the path there. Yeah, the thing that has driven me to really keep my foot on the gas is every now and again, I'll see a video clip of a guy hanging out of a helicopter working on a power line. And I know the stats about how risky his job is. And I just shake my head and say, there has got to be a better way. There has to be. And there's 8% of every seed we put in the ground is lost to something preventable poor irrigation, some disease that we didn't know about that ended up eating the whole field. If the world's food consumption is going to double between now and 2050, how the hell are you going to solve that problem if 8% of what you plant now is lost? So there's a lot of very, very global, very, very real problems that what we're working on will solve. And sometimes I have to sit my own team down and say things like, we are going to have a lot of problems this week, but we are paid to solve them. We are paid problem solvers. So the way I try to describe it is my job is ultimately leading people into a love affair with problem solving. Because if you do not have this passion to just go from one problem to the next, to the next, to the next, it will overwhelm you. That's a great quote. I love it. Leaving people in a love affair with problem solving. I remember talking to another CEO once of a startup company, and he said that he had to strike the right balance in sharing updates on the company, how it was doing with the employees, but not too much. Because what he found was if he every day sort of gave an update, like here's our cash flow, here's our burn rate, they were getting totally stressed out and they couldn't concentrate on the work anymore. So he decided I need to dial back on the transparency for their sake. So you're honest with them, you tell them where you are, but you don't necessarily have to share every single up and down every single day because you don't want the people under you to have an unrealistic picture, but you also need to give them that room to focus. I imagine that happens with you as well, right? You don't want them to be too distracted by everything that comes across your desk. Absolutely. I have two co-founders and one of the growing pains of 2020 has been, listen, guys, I'm not trying to hide anything from you, but for you to be effective and do the role that the company needs you to do, I cannot bog you down with every single issue that comes across my desk, nor do I want you to bog me down with every single thing that comes across your desk. Ask yourself, do I need him? And if the answer is yes, I need him, then you call every time. But if you don't, then handle it yourself. That's been something that in our core team, we've really had to work on this year, especially with all the moving parts. You talk about that I'm in an enviable position. In a lot of ways, that's very true, except we are still expected to perform. Our customers still expect us to be there. The product still has to work right. The revenue has got to be where it needs to be. There are very real things where the buck stops somewhere, and I guess that's with me. Trevor, one final question. You certainly have gotten off to a great start. Where do you see the company? Where do you see Census Technologies, let's say, in five years? Where do you want to be? Well, in five years, I want to be one of the companies that was responsible for mass market adoption of commercial drones. I want to be in that large middle ground between not really quite household like Amazon yet, but people see our logo, it's not novel. 
we're trying to build a multi-billion dollar company here. And that's no small feat. It's going to take more investor capital. It's going to take a lot of wins on the commercial front to get there. But I truly believe we can get there. There is a well that is deep enough for that condition to be true. I always ask myself, okay, this thing that we're about to go do, if we got 1% of 1% of the total market share, is it still a big number? And so long as that answer is yes, then we go forward. I just think that I can lead an effort where we control a few percentage points of the market. And if we do that, and you're talking in billions, how many people are happily employed because of that? How many people aren't on the unemployment line because of that? How many people didn't die in a helicopter this year because of that? There's some very real metrics that I think we can put a dent in. Well, you're certainly off, like I said, to a very good start. And I think it strikes me that you benefit highly from being in a highly competitive market because, as you said, you can't rest. I mean, the market demands certain things and your company needs to have that revenue and so on. And it's market accountability that's, I think, going to make you grow. So I take back what I said earlier. Maybe you shouldn't spend any time doing motivational speaking at all because that's usually the one sign right when a CEO has gone wrong, they become a celebrity CEO and they quit running their companies. (laughs) You probably shouldn't do that yet. But Trevor, Thanks for being on the show today. Really appreciate your insights and wish you the best of luck. I really appreciate the invitation again, man. Thank you so much. And let me know when the podcast goes live. Will do. Radio Cade is produced by the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention, located in Gainesville, Florida. Richard Miles is the podcast host, and Ellie Tom coordinates inventor interviews. Podcasts are recorded at Hardwood Soundstage and edited and mixed by Bob McPeak. The Radio Cade theme song was produced and performed by Tracy Collins and features violinist Jacob Lawson.